You're listening to Exposing the Invisible, interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. You could say I was like a China beat reporter on general news in China. And a lot of my investigative work has grown out of that. I've worked on a bunch of different countries, but I guess the work that I've been doing most recently has focused on the region of Xinjiang, which is in the west of China. The most recent investigation that I did on that subject with Alison Killing and Christo Buschek has been basically a project to um, document the scope and the size of China's mass detention program targeting Muslim minorities in the region. I'm Meika Rajgopalan. I'm a senior correspondent with BuzzFeed News in London. All of my investigative work has been journalistic work. I guess for journalists, there's not the kind of strict division between investigative work and like regular journalistic work that maybe people outside the industry might imagine. I started my career as as a beat reporter, which essentially means that you report consistently on a particular topic or a particular area. So like, for instance, you could be a beat reporter focusing on diplomacy, or you could focus on crime in a big city. I would probably identify as a journalist first, and then I, I guess I, I've i never really called myself an investigator, but um, a lot of the work that I do is investigative, probably the work that I enjoy doing the most. I think there's a lot of kind of service value in revealing things that are of significance to the public that would otherwise stay hidden. To be a good investigator as a journalist, like I think it, it doesn't have to, but a lot of the time... People that are really good at it, it comes out of trying hard to develop an expertise in the subject, you know, getting to know people that are true experts and um, just spending a lot of time covering developments rather than diving in and just doing one big story or one big series. Um, I've definitely done it the second way as well, but I think the first way is possibly more effective. And I think to do that, a lot of that work is not necessarily going to be investigations. Like it could just be about you know, profiling someone or, um, you know, yeah, writing stories in in different ways, um, but that um, get you to a place where you can make bigger discoveries and like you understand how to do that. I had been based in China for a long time and I had reported on issues in Xinjiang, like sort of among other things, for a pretty long time, like almost since like 2012, 2013, I had been writing about the region and I had been traveling there like even before that. So I I was like pretty familiar with the issues at least, like as familiar as an outsider can be, keen to, um, to explore more about it. At the time that Allison and I sort of started thinking about the series, It was beginning to come out that the government's mass detention program was um, something that was quite significant in terms of its ambition. Like there were UN officials and governments that were starting to say that more than a million people had been detained. At the same time, you had the situation where access to the region was just getting worse and worse. There were a lot of kind of obstacles to doing 
traditional journalism in the region, meaning, you know, going there and talking to people and visiting places. Like the the method by which we did the series was a bit unusual, at least for, for, um, for a work of journalism. And I think that that was sort of born out of necessity. So I think that was the thing that was really unusual about the project was like sort of the method rather than the subject. I guess like on a personal level, like obviously I think like discovery is a thrill, you know, it's, it's really gratifying. If there is some piece of information or some document or some piece of evidence that you're looking for, I think if you have to do kind of like a, a lot of digging to be able to get to it, once you get to it, it is like this kind of sense of relief. It's like, you know that you have enough to put a story together to like do the thing that you set out to do. Like, I feel like a lot of people that do investigations are sort of naturally good at it. They're curious people. They're people that know how to think strategically. And it's sort of like once you like complete all of these things that you're supposed to do to get to the information, once you actually get to it, it's like kind of amazing. I mean, a lot of my work has focused on human rights issues and also like a kind of like accountability for human rights abuses. You know, it's not that there are no journalists reporting on this. There are like quite a few at this point. The problem is that most of the journalists that are reporting on it either have lost their access as I have, or they are sort of like DC based or Brussels based and they're covering sort of the policy side in the US or they're covering issues around um, supply chains. And like, they have a bit of a different perspective than I would. I guess what Allison and I have been focused on doing is like figuring out what the facts on the ground are. I think that's sort of how I see our contribution. And I have thought like, you know, if we weren't doing this work, like probably nobody else would do it. I think particularly in this case, because it's such a, it's like a weird combination. It's like a journalist and like a programmer and an architect like working on a project together. I guess the work we produced was uh, was kind of a marriage of like all three of those backgrounds. It's not like there's tons of journalists that have the time and the space and the resources and the, you know the ability to work with people from different disciplines. So I think that's definitely a big motivation for me, um, especially since like I guess during my time covering this subject, I've gotten to know so many people who have been directly impacted by the Chinese government's um, policies in Xinjiang, whether they're ex-detainees or whether they have a family member that is an ex-detainee. You know, many of those people have taken great risks to speak to us as well as other journalists. You know, some of them are on social media. Some of them are have made themselves public in different ways. And I think the ones that have have this understanding that if they put their name, their face to something, they're giving you know, their story, an additional measure of credibility. The real truth is that if they weren't doing that, like none of this would be, you know, the public would not know about any of this. Like they're the ones making this huge sacrifice. And um, there are many of those people that have spoken to me and like, you know, have allowed me to interview them and stuff like that, you know, often about things that are very traumatic to them, you know, very, very difficult experiences that they've had. I, I feel like it's almost, it's a bit of a betrayal. Like if I was gonna, um, you know, like stop working on this, I, at least for now. I mean, they they really need need journalists to report on this subject.
I wasn't really thinking about becoming a journalist until I was in university. I sort of started working at the student newspaper. The university I went to is a public university in the U.S. And um, there was like a, like a Senate. I, they called it the university Senate. And it was made up of like faculty, basically. And I can't really for the life of me remember exactly what their mandate or responsibilities were. But we like had discovered that they just weren't having meetings. It was something like that. Like they had just canceled a meeting for no reason. And they were like a body that had, like they had to exist to like make decisions. So we ran this story about it. I didn't even realize that it was a story. I had just like found out. And then somebody who like understood way more about the administration of the university was like, um, you know, this is actually a pretty significant thing. People are going to be upset about this. And then we published the story and it made a big splash. And I was like, well, this is like kind of exciting because I like these people are kind of screwing up and like, you know, we've done something to show them that somebody's actually watching. Um, so I got interested in it, I think, from around that time. And I guess like the other big thing that got me interested in investigation as a kind of journalism was like my first job out of college. I was a book assistant for a writer named Steve Call, who is currently the dean of Columbia Journalism School. At that time, he was writing a book about ExxonMobil. It's called Private Empire, ExxonMobil and American Power. I didn't really know what I was getting into as a book assistant. Like I knew his work, of course, and like um, I was just really excited to work for him. He's he's sort of best known for a book called Ghost Wars, which is about the run up to 9-11 and sort of all the things that went wrong. Yeah, like it, it was just like a really incredible experience because he let me just do a lot. That was like the first thing. Like he let me sort of run loose and interview people and try to find like former employees and like people who were like Senate staffers and stuff like that. And he just like, he was like, do like research on like subject X. It was really interesting to try to figure out how to get to the center of some of these issues. Like this whole process of like, you start from the outside and then you work your way in and you get to the person that's sort of the closest to what you want to figure out. That's something you sort of have to figure it out by doing it being told, like, find out everything you can about this, and then having to figure out who all of the people close to it were, like, what order to approach them, what documents I should be looking for, how to ask for documents, where to find documents, how to go through them. It was the first time that I had just done this whole process, and I just really enjoyed it. Like, it was, like, it was amazing. And then, like, because I was, like, 21 or something, like, I didn't even think that I was capable of doing this stuff. And then to have some of that material go into like a book that was going to be like a best-selling book that was written by a writer that had won two Pulitzers. It was just like the most incredible thing, learning a method and just gradually getting better at the craft and like improving my interviewing skills and like my like planning skills and like all of that stuff. Other thing is that I just learned a hell of a lot just by watching him interview and like watching him work. He has this style that I still kind of try to mimic today, I think, um, even though it's many years later, in that he asks people questions in a very like open way in order to sort of help them feel that he's making a sincere effort to understand where they're coming from. Sometimes that takes a bit longer 
and it can be tricky if you're working with a source who's like very busy or like doesn't have a lot of time. But in general, I think it yields better responses than um, if you just sort of dive in. The remarkable thing about the technique is like it can work with a source that's friendly and it can also work with somebody who's hostile. And like it actually works better, I think, with people who are hostile because people who are starting this conversation by being hostile to you, like they're, um, they, they already have their guard up. And um, the more you can work to help them uh, relinquish that, I think the better. So I guess like just, just sort of being around when somebody who's like such an adept and experienced interviewer was working. Yeah, like it was a real transformative thing for me. A lot of people, like friends of mine who are not journalists, like always ask me, like, why would anyone ever talk to you? Why would anyone leak a document to you? Because because no one can, most people cannot imagine doing something like that. And in fact, people who do it also sometimes could not have imagined doing it until they were actually doing it. I guess like one thing I learned sort of early on is that it's really important when you're talking to someone, especially if you're you know, trying to get some bit of information from them to think about like, what is actually their motivation to help you with this, right? People have all kinds of motivations to talk to journalists. Um, people have a combination of motivations. Like, I think the reason that you need to understand these things is because like, obviously, for instance, if somebody has an ax to grind, like you don't want to necessarily give them a platform uncritically, like you want to know like what it is you're getting into and you don't want that person to be able to manipulate you. Conversely, like if somebody is sort of like a genuine, genuinely like morally outraged by something and trying to expose it, like I think that's good to know as well. Um, you know, of course, people like that, you know, some some people can be on a crusade or like and the, those things aren't good as well. No matter who you're talking to, you just have to you have to start from a position of trying to understand their point of view. I think that is sort of the first thing that enables people to drop their guards. I think that's one thing. And then also showing them that you're a credible person, that you're not going to try to, you know, you're you're going to do the work that it will take to, you know, frame what they're saying in an honest way. And like in a way that makes sense and incorporates the the kind of necessary context. I think that's really important. And like it can like for me, like because I've now been reporting on a one particular subject for a, a number of years, like it's it's gotten a lot easier because, you know, some people will like read my work or they'll be familiar and then they'll already come in thinking, OK, this person is not whatever else happens, like they're not going to completely misunderstand what I'm saying. But I think that if you're if you're new to reporting on a subject, it can be a little bit harder to get to that point. The illegal drugs war will not be sidelined. Instead, it will be as relentless and chilling as on the day it began. I did this investigation in the Philippines. This was like the first investigative project I did after I joined BuzzFeed. And this was at the height of the drug war there. For anyone who doesn't know, the president of the Philippines, whose name um, is Rodrigo Duterte, basically launched this campaign of like police, police violence, honestly, and like uh, vigilante killings of people who were like suspected drug users. So not like dealers or anything like that. We're talking about like small time users and like sellers, people with sort of like makeshift homes. 
you know, selling rice or selling vegetables on the street, like uh, people who were honestly like intensely vulnerable. I was based in Southeast Asia at the time. I knew that I wanted to do this piece on the Philippines. And um, I knew that the U.S. was giving aid to police in the Philippines. And like they do that because of, I guess, the historical like kind of relationship between those two countries that stems from the colonial period. And also because like the U.S. wants to like... Um, basically maintain good ties with the military and the police in the Philippines, like for like, it's kind of like broader strategy in the region. So like, I started this off with a question, right? The question is, is this is the US government specifically giving aid money to police units that are directly implicated in, in the drug war? So that was like the burden of proof. So to, to answer that, you have to first figure out like what police units is the US giving aid money to? Yeah. So like, how do you figure that out? So like, obviously, the people that are giving aid have documentation. There's also, you know, accountability bodies in the US that have to have access to this documentation. So I started going around and asking people in DC, like, do you have any sense of like, who this aid money is going to and stuff like that. Eventually, I got a document that listed all of the individual police units that had received the aid money. So then the next part of the question is, are these units com committing gross human rights violations, right? I went to Manila. I went to a bunch of different police stations, like police units in Metro Manila. And I literally showed up with like a t-shirt and jeans and like a backpack. And then I started asking them all these questions about like how they were acting in the drug war. And I think because of like the way I was dressed, and like the way I looked, like there was already like this like level of you know, maybe underestimation. I think someone asked me if I was doing a school project, which I really love when people ask stuff like that. And like, sure enough, like as soon as you start talking about it, you know, people were quite happy to admit like what it was that their officers were doing. There was one police official who even said, you know, um, he was like, the drug war has been really successful. Like we've seen rates of like, burglary, like robberies, like, um, you know, all of these crimes going down. He was like, of course, the murder rate has gone through the roof, but like, that's to be expected. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, and like, it was, it was like, if anyone's ever seen this documentary, The Act of Killing, which is really incredible documentary, it felt a little bit like that. It felt so insane that people would talk openly about these, like things like, like vigilante killings and stuff like that. Sometimes people will tell you these things because in their particular universe, it's not necessarily considered like as crazy as it would look to you as an outsider. For them, they were already in the context of this drug war where the president of the country was encouraging them to do these actions, right? That really helped put the story together because, you know, the police also gave me data, like data about arrests, about killings, about all this stuff, um, in addition to explain what they had done. You know, I went out a bunch of times at night um, to like to the scenes of killings and um, in different parts of Metro Manila. And like that also helped with with documentation and with learning about like kind of like the, the cost of this. It's like an example of like you start with kind of a research question. You start with a question about what you want to find out. And then you sort of divide that question up and like figure out how to get to each individual part. I think the thing that worked with that story is like putting all those three components together. The narratives and personal stories of the people that were impacted as well as the information about, you know, how they dealt with the police and like where they were located you know, the the document that showed where the U.S. money had actually gone to. And then the third thing was, of course, um, 
the data and um, like the interviews with the police officers who um, sort of explained what they were doing on the ground. I spent a lot of time thinking about source safety. I think everyone really sh has to. I think it's a responsibility. Um, it's really hard, um, especially working on China issues. It can be quite hard just because if you're talking to people in China, they don't have access to a lot of encrypted apps and stuff that we would. I'm pretty sure Signal's blocked there now. Like WhatsApp is not really that usable. So like you can't like protect your sources in the same way that you would somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about technology and like, you know, like what what to do, like in term in like concrete terms in terms of digital security and like providing that to your sources as well. But like, I guess more on a philosophical point, like I guess I always try to think about, you know, consent and what does consent mean when you interview someone? For me, like if I'm interviewing someone who's really vulnerable, right, like supposing somebody who was formally detained in, um, you know, an internment camp in Xinjiang, you know, if they say to me like, I want to give my name. I want to attach my photo to this. I really want to make sure they understand what that means. You know, like I want them to understand if this is going to have an impact on any family that they might have in China, for instance. Basically what it means to have their name and their photo like on a site like BuzzFeed, which is like has no paywall and like is at the top of your Google results. Like they may not necessarily, like if they're not reading English language news, like they may not really know what that means. By the same token, I think like the flip side of that is that for somebody that genuinely wants to come forward, wants the credibility of having their name or photo associated with their story and like understands that that will make the story better and like more believable to readers, I don't want to deny them the opportunity to do that. Even like if they're taking on a risk and they're sort of mindfully choosing to take on that risk, like that's their agency and that's their right. And like, I'm, I'm happy for them to do that. It's, it's a really tricky balance. Like I have lots of colleagues who have talked to sources who have then got gotten arrested. Like these things happen sometimes. Like I think the best we can do is try to mitigate risk like as much as humanly possible, not just to sources, but to colleagues as well. Make sure that the people that are really taking on the risk are like truly informed, like genuinely informed about what they're getting into. I'm lucky. Like I'm, I have a U.S. passport and I live in London. Like, I mean, I don't think as much about risk, risk to myself as a journalist as probably like most journalists in the world do. I mean, it's, it's a little bit weird to say now because, you know, there are so many Anglophone journalists now who have lost access in China who have faced really bad harassment. I guess if you look at it now, it seems like actually quite a risky place to be a journalist. A lot of journalists in China, like foreign journalists, like get detained by local police or like this is something that happens often. It's really just honestly a bit of a time waster. I think if I were in country now, I would probably see it in a bit of a different way. In the journalistic universe, like we're we're sort of like 
it's a little too insular. When I was a student, like, I think I took a course in, like, I think uh, what was then called computer-assisted reporting, which we would now call data journalism, like, the process of, like, collecting and cleaning and analyzing data as a journalistic method. And, like, that at that time was considered sort of, like, a new form of investigation. Now I feel like things have opened up to um, so many more kind of different kinds of approaches. I guess like a big thing that I learned just from working with Allison and Christo is just that, like, I mean, Allison, especially like when I met her, I had been reporting on Xinjiang on and off for like a few years. And I thought I knew the issue pretty well. But when I met her, she immediately, she had this completely different approach. Like she immediately sort of started thinking about um, like the physical spaces that these people were being held in like where the camps were in the region and like like what that would tell us like it was just a completely kind of like different mode of thinking i was just like blown away by that she thinks in a way that like that it comes naturally to her and like i could never i could never like do that i really hope that the industry like the the media industry will like broaden the way they think about investigators i think there are so many people with different specialties like in academia you know, in fields like toxicology and architecture, um, geospatial analysis, data sciences, AI, like that have the potential to work on journalistic projects and to contribute to projects that are intended for the general public. There are people from these backgrounds that that like really want to engage in these projects, but like they may not necessarily know how to like pitch a news organization or like navigate the bureaucracy of getting an article published or like they might think the only avenue open to them is to write an op-ed. That suggests that there's something about the bureaucracy of our industry that is like not actually the most friendly or transparent or accessible. And I think that like I personally and like my news organization, like we've gained so much from breaking down that wall and like going to work with like an architect and a programmer like on this project. I, I feel optimistic because of the success of that project. Like I hope that other teams will see that and think like, you know, they could do something sort of similar, like even if they don't have kind of a traditional background like that. I think I can be kind of obsessive, which is like <laughs> both a good and a bad thing. Like you don't want to be obsessive to the point that you keep going even after like you've already got it. And like, that's why my editor is awesome. And like, that's like something that he probably helps me with. Like I try to like not leave stones unturned. Like if I can interview two dozen people about something or like a dozen, like I'll do the two dozen. Like I would rather do that and like have the confidence that I haven't left something on the table. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever been intimidated by me. So like, I think that's like quite a good thing. I'm not sure how good I am at putting people at ease, but I do feel that like being underestimated has been a positive thing for me in my career. And uh, there are probably a lot of women that can say that as well. I lay awake at night thinking, did I screw this up? Did I screw that up? Is someone going to get blowback that I don't want to get blow? You know what I mean? Like, but I think that's good. Like you, you have to worry about those things. I think if you're not worrying about those things, you're actually doing a disservice. The parts that I find easier are like, just like 
the process of like trying to discover information, like whether it's interviewing or going through documentation, just because like, I feel like it's, it's like low pressure. It's often something you can do at your own pace. I like doing the work, right? Like, I guess that, that to me, like sort of comes a little bit more, more naturally. I remember myself as an early career journalist and being intimidated by people who describe themselves as, a, as investigative reporters and thinking, you know, it's it's hard to do that kind of work unless that's your title or um, you have a specific mandate from your employer to do that kind of work. Obviously, I'm not saying that news organizations shouldn't have investigative specific reporters. You know, there are some projects that do just take a lot of time and a lot of digging and like need somebody who's specialized in that particular kind of journalism to be able to carry it out. But I do think that anyone can do an investigation regardless of what it is that you focus on. Like you can find something to be able to investigate. I don't really describe myself that way because I don't want to like put off sources because I think it's intimidating. And I've like my entire career, I've like tried to avoid intimidating people and to like make people feel like they can talk to me and that it's like okay to talk to me and stuff. And I do, maybe I'm wrong, but I, if, if I were working at some company that had done something bad or like some organization that had done something bad and I wasn't necessarily part of it, but like I was contacted by someone who described themselves as, as an investigator, investigative journalist, I would like run far away, right? Like you don't want to immediately frame everything you do as an investigation right it may be that you produce something that uncovers some kind of wrongdoing but I guess like to term it as an investigation from the outset it's almost like you're um, predetermining like what the final result is going to be I always think it's more helpful just to approach people and say like oh I'm a reporter like I'm doing interviews about this subject I'm just trying to understand like you know your background or what you feel about x like, I feel like that's like a much nicer way to approach someone than to say, like, I'm an investigator. And then it also kind of feels a little bit egomaniacal I think, to describe yourself like that in some some sense. Exposing the Invisible is a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from the European Commission. Interview and production by Joe Barrett. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Iskander, Laura Ranka, Marek Tyshinsky, and Christy Lang.